I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and a very warm welcome. This is the Motormouth podcast with myself, Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie, where in each show we sit down with a figure from the world of motorsport and dive into how exactly they ended up where they are now. F1 champions, team principals, Formula E and touring car stars. If there's anyone with a story to tell, they'll usually tell it right here. Motormouth is an app and website where you can catch up with all the latest F1 gossip at motormouth.club and view live timings across a race weekend with our app. We're also proud to be partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure through events like our annual karting race, where you can go head-to-head against professional drivers, all to raise vital funds. For more info, check out motormouthkartrace.com. This podcast is brought to you by F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality, and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport, and let's face it, any chance to get close to Formula One, we're all over it. Enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality, first-class hotels and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com, where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 experiences package by using the code MM11F1E when checking out online. So, what are you waiting for? Experience the 2022 F1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of F1 Experiences. Get booking today at f1experiences.com. Hello, my name's Tim Sylvie, and today we're joined by a man who grew up in lovely Paris. And did you know, Harry, that the Louvre Museum, which is home to the famous Mona Lisa, is the world's most popular museum? It has over 35,000 pieces of art on display, but has a collection outside of what you can see, which is over 460,000 pieces strong. And one, one more for you, my friend, the Eiffel Tower, a building we all know and now love, and a building very synonymous with 
with Paris was meant to be a temporary structure. It was the French demonstrating their engineering and construction prowess. But in 1889, when it was built, it was hugely unpopular with residents, uh, with senior figures protesting against it, with the media calling it a useless monstrosity. Did you know those French facts, my, uh, my dear boy? I didn't know that about the Eiffel Tower at all. That was uh, that's very uh, enlightening. I had a feeling about the Louvre. I think I've been I've been to Paris a couple of times, but uh, and been to the Louvre, but uh, and I've been up the Eiffel Tower, but I did not know. I must it must be written somewhere. Yeah. I, was, I was quite young at the time, um, but um, yeah, and no, I didn't know that. The Louvre is a funny one. I went to the Louvre a few years ago um, and went to see the Mona Lisa. I have to say it was a slight anticlimax because <laughs> that you you get like thirty seconds to stare at it, and it's tiny. It's so far away on this wall, and you're like, well, really? I've come all the way to France to look at the postage stamp. Um, but there we I are. I heard a rumour they're making it into an NFT as well. So they probably are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. someone will buy that for billions. <laughs> um, how does your F3 comms go, by the way? this By the time this goes out, your F3 comms will feel like an eternity ago, but you, you made your debut on um, Sky Sports with the F3 on your own. How was it? Yeah, that was hard. 30 cars um, is a lot to keep track of in one lap. Um, but yeah, it was really good. So uh, we did the first one in Bahrain, then there's a break, and the next one is Imola, which is round two. So I'm not entirely sure if we've done that already or we're just before that. So uh, yeah, round one seemed to go okay. Sadly, uh, Jordan King was supposed to do it with me, but he's broken both of his arms. So uh, he can't drive, <laughs> let alone have. hold the microphone. No. Um, so uh, he's out. Um, but I will be joined by um, a plethora of uh, guests throughout the year, including one we've had on the podcast like Alex Brundle and Alice Powell so that'll be nice so looking forward to the next one excellent well enough rambling shall we introduce today's guest I think so. Let's do it. So today, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Sylvain Felipe, the Managing Director and CTO of Envision Racing. Sylvain graduated with a master's in 2003 before working his way up in the industry, founding the EV Cup in 2009. It wasn't long before the natural transition to Formula E happened when he joined the team in 2013 as a founding member. He now leads the Envision Racing team, where he's got overall accountability for all aspects of the team. An early EV driver and advocate of renewable energy, he's led the charge with Envision Racing's Race Against Climate Change, an admirable sustainability program affecting change in and outside of the sport. It's our pleasure to have him here. Sylvain, welcome to the Motormouth podcast. Hello, glad to be here. How are you? Very well. Very well, thank you, Sylvain. Thank you for taking the time. Whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you in Paris? Is the Eiffel Tower in the background somewhere? <laughs> Very strong facts on Paris uh, this morning, by the way. Um, no, I'm not. I live, I live in the UK. I was in Silverstone yesterday and just, just back home today. Very nice. Now, um, what we like to start all of our podcasts with is, is pretty much the same question to all of our guests. And we like to go back to your roots and, and you know how things started for you, where you grew up and, and where motorsport first came on the radar for you what was it that made you go right okay i want to work in motorsport sure um so yeah i was born in paris grew up in paris um moved to the uk about 15 years ago um but my love for motorsport and cars actually started with cars i guess like most people when i was really a kid i was obsessed with cars when i was a kid couldn't tell you why it just happened i remember trying to drive my dad's car uh, the parking lot at 11 years old i was quite tall when I was young, so I could reach the pedals quite early. Um, you know, and in, in France at the time, you could you could drive a car at 16 years old with your parents next to you. So I was driving every day all the time at 16, which is quite rare in Europe. I just loved cars. I just loved driving. So yeah, I did a business school in, in France, um, which had a, a very rare but very useful master's degree in, in the automotive industry. 
did that, of course, and then it opened a lot of doors to, to work in the industry. So my first few years were in the automotive industry. And then I had some connections in motorsport, racing drivers and so on. <coughs> and um, following motorsport, like like anyone who likes the sport. And then um, when I moved to the UK, working in consulting, uh, again, for automotive brands and, and you know, that's where I discovered the world of, of electric cars. And, you know, long story short, that's where I discovered this huge um, uh, gap in perception between between what I knew electric technology could do for cars um, versus what the perception of people was. And then, and then this crazy idea that motorsport could actually play a big role in, in demonstrating what the tech can do. So that was in 2009. So it was nowhere near as popular as now, um, probably too early. But you, um, but you had a uh, you had a, a Tesla Roadster, didn't you? That was one of but way back when, like 2008 or something, when these Roadsters were, were coming out. No, nobody heard of Tesla. No one knew these machines. What what drew you to go down that road at that early stage? Yeah, uh, good question. <clears throat> but I didn't have one. By the way, I drove one many times. Ah. I was very close to the to the guys at Tesla, the the, the very small team at Tesla at the time um, uh, in Europe and in uh, and in some people in the US. Um, so yeah, through my work, basically consulting work on, on electric cars for most of the main major manufacturers, I become quite quickly well, with my team um, pretty good and knowledgeable around EVs. And, and and yeah, so we got really lucky and organized some events. And I got to drive a Tesla Roadster, I think the very first one or the second one in the UK. Um, and I was blown away. Like it was just, you know, the performance was incredible. Um, we, organized, we organized a drag race with a... Uh, some other cars and it just demolished everything and I was like it basically <laughs> confirmed what I knew which is you know the potential the torque the way you know an electric motor is just much better to move any kind of vehicle so it was the first time we could actually see a product that, that demonstrates what the what the tech can do so yeah I guess it played a role in, in the decision of um, of uh, trying to go to go forward with that project now Formula E is obviously going to be our sort of dominant talking point here but considering you know you are already sort of infused by uh, electric vehicles and electric technology in its you know infancy when did Formula E first come onto your radar did you watch it from its very first season were you involved from the start or, or was it something you just sort of caught your eye on once it had kind of developed a bit <laughs> well no, I was involved in very early early days so it's a long story, so I'll, I'll give you a summary. But um, <clears throat> through the EV Cup project, we basically were talking to the FIA. We got you know wind of the project on how it was going on. You had Formula Formulaic at the time, which was a, a French startup that had developed the first kind of single-seater um, uh, electric. It was based on an F3 chassis, I think. Um, um, anyway, so EV Cup was not really on single-seaters, but we are, anyway, long story short, we, um, uh, my company was involved in the in the tender and the call for expression of interest to be part of Formula E. That led to basically um, uh, Formula E asking whether we would like to enter a team, and then the link with Virgin came up, and and here you go. So mm. it's a bit blurry now. I don't know. It was, this was over. <laughs> this was over many months, right? Like 2012, 2012, 2013. It was when all these discussions were happening, and at the end of 2013 is when we signed our official team entry wow. in the championship so so, you, so, so yeah you, and then you have to remember you have to remember the first race was in 2014 right yeah, so yeah. we'll get to that but all the teams we were one of the early teams to sign up I think but let's say end of 2013 so we had basically six months to from signing a piece of paper saying you know we're going to race in this championship we're going to be part of it and it was very much startup mode from everyone you know the championship FINS 
And in six months, we had to um, we had to put everything in place, like a team, uh, learn about the tech, um, and then we got our cars. I think in April or May that year, something like that, maybe even later. Um, and then you know a few days of testing, and we were you know, racing in, in Beijing in September. So it's amazing. Yeah, it was, but this it was is a crazy why time. this is why I love these uh, chats, these podcasts, because I knew you were involved with the team in a in a very deep way, and you you went you know you've been CTO, you're now CTO and managing director, but I didn't realize you were so ingrained in the fabric of the team. So you so you were literally there from day one, from when there was nothing through to creating this car, creating this team and being involved from the very, very beginning with, like you say, in, in startup mode, this is not just you sort of being pulled in later on to run the team. You're, you're really, yeah. it's, it's part of yeah. you. Yeah, we were a few of us. It wasn't just me, but uh, <clears throat> we all came from, um, from different backgrounds at the time when we started the team. Um, but because I, I had been working, I, I guess I was just one of the very few people on this planet, I guess, that was already working on EV technology and racing before even formally started. So, you know, gave me kind of a, I had already a pretty good idea what, what was going on. And then it was just a question of, um, of finalizing the team and what it would look like and so on. So so my task, as I said, was a yeah, startup mode. We basically were operating from a, our office was basically a meeting room um, at our law firm <laughs> in the city. And that's where we were operating at the beginning, you know, like really proper startup. Um, and then we got settled in, uh, at the factory and so on. But um, yeah, it was uh, as any new company, right? Like nothing, nothing too crazy, but it's always, the beginnings are always, mm. when it works out, the beginnings are always very fun, a lot of hard work, but you look, you look, you look back at it very, very fondly. That's, that's amazing. Uh, sorry, Harry, go on. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, so what, when you first started, what was sort of your main kind of, when the team was up and running, I suppose, in that first season, what was your kind of main role? And then how has that progressed to now? So sort of what did you do then versus what you do now? Yeah, good question. It's changed a lot. So yeah, to continue on the, on the story, the first year from the end of the saying, okay, we're going to have a team, let's start a team to, you know, this, this six months period from, from end of 2013 to racing in Beijing in 2014, you had like some teams informally were already existing teams in other championships like like Dams and Apt and others. So for them, it was more a question of understanding the specificities of, of electric cars and how how we're going to go racing and, and so on. For us and a few others, we were starting from scratch. We were the three of us. So my first task was build a team. <laughs> like we need people, engineers, mechanics, tools, equipment. Like, you know, we have to build a team from scratch. So that was the main main job, really, in the first half of, of 2014. And then try to understand the tech and the cars once they were delivered to us, and and try to figure out how to be how to be competitive. And ju- just it was just, a very sorry, steep very steep learning curve. Sorry, like, so, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, Sylvan. Just yeah. going back on what you were saying there about the the first part. Yeah. So you, you've got to uh, build a team. So you've got to find people and find equipment and presumably a factory. And, you know, you make this sound incredibly easy. I'm sure it's not. How are you financing this? Like, where's, where's the cash coming from to, to hire these people and to get the equipment? Yeah, yeah, good question. So as part of, um, like all Formula E teams, we had to, part of signing and say, we'll be a team in Formula E, um, we had to commit to have whatever, whatever amount it was, but we had to commit that we had enough money in the bank to go racing for at least a year or two or whatever. So we had, we had money in the bank. We had to be, of course, very efficient about it. Um, but uh, you couldn't just stand a piece of paper and say, I'm going to go racing. Yeah, there was a fair amount of due diligence. And to be fair, 
FINFEO uh, run a really good process like from the beginning. The reason why Formula is so successful now is in part because the objectives and the, the purpose of the championship was very clear from the outset and the process was really well run from the beginning. So, so you look at all the teams in the first year, all the teams were already pretty solid and then pretty well funded with good people in charge, which is quite rare for like a brand new project. Um, and, and that solidity basically allowed the championship to grow so much quicker than, than we thought. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So that's how it happened. So actually the most difficult thing, you know what, was to convince people that this is going to work. Yeah. Right? Like in, 20, in 2014, believe me, you said, well, we're going to do a top-end electric single-seater championship, you know, that will become a world championship. Like people thought you want some form of good drugs, you know. Um, it was quite, a, and it was for me, it was hard because like I was such a deep believer. I knew, I knew this was going to work. I knew I, I was I had zero doubt. Like, I was fully committed on this. Um, but you can't expect what I had to learn is that you can't expect people who haven't been in the electric vehicle industry to understand that. Fair enough, right? Like, so it was a lot of education, a lot of talking to people and so on. And we made many mistakes. Don't get me wrong. It took two, three years, probably. The first two, three years of racing, it, it took us to fine-tune the team and get the right people on board and build it and so on. It wasn't, it wasn't so plain sailing. But that's normal, I guess. Yeah. God, it's it's a real roller coaster, isn't it? And and I suppose alongside the team changing, you've seen the sport change as well. That I mean, the first generation cars are almost unrecognizable from from the current gen, and we're we're getting a, another um, set of cars coming in next season, the Gen Three cars, which everyone's quite excited about. But the racing looks quite different to how it did um, in season one. They, I think. You know, you talk about having to convince people about this electric racing. I think even in the first couple of seasons, people were still a bit on the fence and not really sure that this was going to carry on and, and be successful. So you, you must have seen the actual sport morph into something um, more polished and, and um, a very different type of racing to how it was when it first kicked off. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And actually, I didn't answer the second part of your question earlier, but yeah, the sport has completely changes and recognizable compared to the beginning, right? So so back to how my job evolved, right? The beginning of the first years of my job was basically build a team, try to be competitive, try to build something that has good foundations and, and keep going. And like any small startup, you have to do everything yourself, right? When now my job is extremely different, right? We have a team of 40 people. I have an extremely strong management team that I can rely on. I'm actually far less aware of the details of what's going on. I used to know, you know, the exact run plan that we're going to run at the test or whatever. Now, if you ask me, I have no idea. Um, so, you know, which is good. It's a sign that yeah. things are, are progressing, right? But so so the job itself has changed hugely, uh, of course, which is which is normal. And the sport completely, of course, like in the, in the early years, even though to be, I mean, to be fair, for me, again, I've done a great job, right? The racing was pretty spot on from the beginning. Uh, the, the cars were, of course, quite slow. It was the beginning. We had to change cars mid-race. It was all a bit, a bit, God, a bit yeah. crazy. But we, had, but we had to, it was the only way to, to get going and to, to run the championship. Um, so the racing was good, but behind the scenes, there were many, many things we were like trying to figure out. You know, uh, There was one race where I think we lost, uh, we, the chargers, um, the chargers uh, broke, so we couldn't charge the cars between qualifying and race. And like, that's a disaster. So everyone was running around frantically, um, things like this. But uh, now, now the sport is again in eight years. We are in our eighth season, which is still a pretty young sport, right? By any by any account, and the sport is now so polished and so professional, and that's what makes it very interesting and and very difficult for me now. Actually, that's the challenge: is that everyone is so competitive. The teams 
the teams are really maximizing every hundredth of a second. Like whether it's the car, the engineers, the strategy, the equipment they use. Like it's, it really is a mini Formula One now. And, and you look around the paddock, actually, you see a lot of Formula One faces. Yeah. Um, not that Formula One is, you know, the, the best at everything, but but it just shows that the level of sophistication and engineering and, you know, the drivers, of course, um, uh, it's just so high, which is which I think is good. It's why the racing product is so good. It's yeah. so good to watch because all the teams are so good. Very few teams drop the ball at any time, right? Like in the early years, I think most teams have at least won a race or been on the podium or whatever because a lot of teams would make at least one mistake, if not more, every race. And they would be like, you know, we're still learning about the tech and the regen and so on and the strategy. So, you know, you would always look out at some point. Sure, the cream always rises to the top, right? So we had the strong teams always kind of up there. But now it's not like that. Now to win, win a, winning a race in Formula E now feels very special. Even our team, like the few teams that have won plenty of races, winning a race, being on the podium feels very special because it's just so bloody difficult. Like, yeah. it's so tight. You know, you look at qualifying, the drivers are a few hundredths of a second from each other. That's the difference between P1 and P8 on the grid. You know, it's ridiculous. Well, I, um, I think, wasn't it Berlin or something when they did sort of four back-to-back that at one point the top 17 were covered by a couple of tenths? And you, just, you don't see that in any other no. championship. That, that's it. That's it. It's uh, it's like that pretty much every race weekend now. You know, depending on the on the length of the circuit. But you know, we have always have the top guys separate by a few hundred, few tenths at most, um, which is nothing really. And that's why the championship is so interesting for us. It's, it makes my job more difficult because you have to explain to your shareholders and whatever. Like, well, why is it? Why are we not winning more? Mm. What do I think? But look, look, look around. Like, look, um, look the kind of teams we are competing with. You know, we are all at the top of our game. So, but I think it's great. It makes, it makes, you know, I mean, the sport is going very quickly again after COVID. And uh, I think that's the racing we all want to see, right? Mm-hmm. Very competitive. You genuinely don't know, even in the paddock, you ask me or anyone else, no one could tell you accurately who's going to win a race. It's no. impossible. Yeah. And that's the definition of sport to me, right? Like that's, that's how it should be. So, yeah. I think people um, are very, it's very easy to forget how young Formula E is because you say, you know, eight, you see eight seasons. It's not, when you compare that, you know, what was Formula One like in its eighth year, you know, so it, it's yeah. madness how far it's come. And, and I, I bumped into um, Sam Bird, of course, uh, last week, your old, your old friend. And he said, you know, you look, up, you look up and down the grid at the drivers and this year especially, there isn't a weak link and that's just on the driver's side. You know, in some, some yeah. sports, you, you know, in motorsports, you'll see, you know, there's a few people and teams and drivers that, you know, you could probably pick out some weak links. But actually, in Formula E, he was saying, this year, I can't find one, which just goes to show the sort of the, the breadth of the calendar. And, you know, yeah. eight years, you've had a lot of ups and downs, mistakes made, but also you've been championship contenders too. Can you talk us through some of the, the big highlights that have stood out for you so far over the course of your Formula E journey? Ah, there are so many. <clears throat> yeah, there's been some difficult times, but so many good times as well. And we've been lucky to have a really stable team, um, very focused, very, you know, like the fact that some of the teams are doing other championships in the past, not so much now, but in the early years, it was a bit of a distraction for them as well when our team was really a young team. So less experience we had to build, but we were fully focused, you know, Monday to Friday, and the weekend sometimes working on the Formula E. So that, that made us quite strong. Um, but yeah, so many, I don't know, so many come to mind, like winning in, a, it's always the wins, right? Like after all the work, it's, uh, it's winning races. So winning in Paris in season five was huge for me because even though I've left Paris a long time ago, 
it's still an amazing city for me. So being on a podium with Robin winning that race was incredible. It was this race, I don't know if you remember, if you watch it, when we literally had four seasons in one race. It's only yeah. 45 minutes, but we had sunshine, rain, <laughs> hail. Like the conditions were absolutely insane. And Robin did an absolutely masterful drive to, to, win, to win that race. That was good. The first time we went to New York City, which was a big deal, right? In motorsport, there'd never been really a, a race in motorsport in New York before. Um, first weekend, season three, it was a doubleheader, and we won both races with Sam. It was just an incredible weekend. Um, like statistically, that doesn't happen very often. Um, what's other so many? And then the, the Sam actually will know that story very well. Um, in season two, you know, season one, all the cars were identical. You had to start the championship, and then most teams and manufacturers decided to build their own car, their whole powertrain in season two. But to add to the craziness of the first year, when my shareholders told me we need to do that too, I had less than six months, five, five and a half months from, okay, let's do it, to actually putting a car on track. Which, you know, if you did that today, you wouldn't even get the parts, right? But at the time we did it. The car was hugely overweight, uh, poorly designed, you know, it was the early years of Formula E and it was, it was still better than the standard car from, from year one. It had many flaws. The main one was it was way too heavy, way too much weight at the back of the car. The car basically handled like an old school 911, <laughs> which is not what you want in a single seater. And in Buenos Aires, the, and despite that, the car was a dragster with so much torque, like so much power. So we, to this day, I think we have the record of the most pole positions in, in, in this season. Like the car was a beast in qualifying, not so much in the race on efficiency. And, um, but we had like a, a many podiums with that car and we won the race in Buenos Aires. It was the, one of the early races that season, season two. And Sam was on pole and then you could see him fighting that car for the, for the 45 minutes felt like three hours. Like yeah. he was power sliding that car every corner for 45 minutes. And Sebastian Buemi in the much more efficient lighter Renault at the time started all the way at the back and managed to basically overtake one car every lap. Every lap he was overtaking someone to the point that he was on the back of Sam for like three or four laps at the end of the race and his car was so much better the handling was so much better and Sam somehow managed to hang on to that first place it really felt like an absolute miracle that win so <laughs> yeah they felt good but you know putting like that was really a car that it was basically an R&D team of one i.e. me and a bunch of suppliers that's how we designed that car wow. and, and being on the being winning a race with that car felt very special even now, in hindsight, we look at it. We still have the parts in the workshop, and we look at it and like, how on earth did that compete? You I, know? I was going to say, yeah. what, what do you do with the the old cars? Do you have like an area for them? Do you keep them? Are they, are they in yeah. pits? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. In, in Silverstone, we have um, sort of a, a really nice uh, new unit in Silverstone, and um, yeah, we have all the, uh, the the parts, the shelves, and we keep we keep all the power trains. I keep it because I show it to our partners, our sponsors mm. that come. Uh, that's my favorite part of the factory tour. Yeah. I take them there and say, look at the evolution from the motor in season one or two to what we run now. Yeah. It's literally talking about the evolution of the sport. It's ridiculous. You know, it's uh, half the size, you know, three times lighter. <laughs> it was all at the time it was aluminum bell housing. Now, of course, it's all carbon casing and so on. So, yeah, the evolution in seven, eight years is just incredible. That's amazing. So it's always fun, always fun, to, always fun to, to show people. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsports. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first-class hotels and transfers and 
and unprecedented access, including track tours, pit lane walks, VIP hospitality, and loads more. It really is the closest you can get to Formula One. And Motormouth listeners can save 5% on your next F1 experiences package by using the code MM11F1E when booking online at F1Experiences.com. You mentioned one or two of your drivers there. You've obviously got a pretty strong driver lineup now with, with Robin, who's who's been with you a while now, but is, is an incredibly uh, talented driver and probably doesn't get the recognition that he deserves in, in terms of sort of global motorsport from a fan's perspective. I mean, he really has pulled yeah. off some of the overtakes, that the, the best overtakes the championship has seen. And obviously Nick Cassidy, who's come up through the junior ranks via Formula 3 in Japan, um, where he, he was incredibly successful, um, a huge talent uh, himself. You must be very pleased with your current driver lineup and excited about the future with them. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, <clears throat> that's why they're in the team. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, when I say family is very competitive, like my main job, you know, aside you know, commercial and finance, everything else, but the main job is to get the right car, the right technology, and the right software, all these things. Uh, the right engineering team, you know, front of the house, mechanics, equipment, all these things. And then, of course, drivers are a huge part of the equation because, again, the formula is exciting because the drivers really make a difference, you know. We see not to be bashing Formula One, you know, we love Formula One, but you, we can see, like, recently, like, how much the car makes a difference in Formula One, right, based on the car, the race last weekend. Um, so, but in Formula E, the drivers really make a big difference um, uh, into the performance by the way they manage the qualifying. Of course, it's a very brutal qualifying format where you have only a few laps to do your best lap, so there's no error allowed. And then on the efficiency, how you run the race, you have to be very clever reacting what, yeah, on what the other drivers are doing, etc. So I think, yeah, on driver lineup, we've been we've done pretty well from the beginning, which is why we are one of the most successful teams because it's not just us as a team, it's the driver choice. All our drivers have always been very strong, uh, you know, more or less. But but overall, our driver lineup has always been very strong. And now, and we spend a lot of time, you know, mm. making sure that we choose our drivers carefully. We try to build really good relationships with them. We are very the, the the strength is that we're still a really small team, you know, around forty people. It's still very manageable, and I can really I can run this team as a family very much, you know, which yeah. you cannot do uh, if you're the scale of Formula One. You can't do that, right? It's yeah. too many people. But we can run the team like that, and we try to provide a very supportive environment to our drivers, like where they feel very comfortable, they can say anything, you know, all, all these things we can build, um, and it helps. So yeah, so Nick and Robin, yeah, uh, you said it perfectly, right? I, Robin is an incredible talent. He won pretty much every championship he's, he's been in the first time, I think, most of the time. Incredible talent behind the wheel, um, and Nick, we have huge, huge hopes for Nick. I think, I think he's a very, very exciting talent. Um, 
not easy to go make the jump from from Japan and Super Formula and so on to Formula E. Very different style of driving, um, and it takes time to get used to it. Um, but you can see, like uh, last year, Nick had, had some amazing results. Um, and he got very unlucky at certain points mm, as well. He did he? being biffed off yeah. the road and, and things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. And you know, there's always a learning curve. Like the first half of last season, you know, you have uh, things to learn. Formula is very different to to especially to race. Um, but he's shown the speed times and times again. So so we are super excited. Now it's a question of putting it all together. You know, the car, the strategy, the setup for a particular track. Uh, make sure he's prepared pro- properly and, and and give him all the tools he needs to um, to deliver the goods. But yeah, super exciting. So and we have a long season ahead of us. You know, we have uh, yeah. 16 races this year. We've only done three, so many many opportunities this year. Well, well, that's my next question. Of course, we've had well two place two three races down uh, Saudi Arabia, and Mexico too, in Saudi obviously mixed results, but it looks encouraging. The pace is there. You've got a strong driver lineup, as you say. What are you hoping for the? So we're in that we're recording right now in that sort of lull pre-Rome. Um, so what are you hoping for for the rest of the season? I imagine it's wins for the rest of it, but what are you hoping sort of realistically the expectations are going to be? So more, more same as last year, basically. So we know we have the pace. Um, it can vary a little bit from track to track because the Formula E cars are very sensitive to set up. So you can see it with us, but many other teams as well. Uh, even the top teams can, you know, be very dominant somewhere and not so much at another track, even though it's the same car. Um, but on average, you know, we have, we clearly have a very fast car in qualifying and the pace um, and race pace. So yeah, I want I want to see many wins, many podiums, and you know, what hurts, as you know, is that last year we were leading the championship for pretty much the entire season, and we had an absolute shocker where we came in double header in Berlin at the end, where we didn't score any points, and that that all went away. So there's no reason why we can't repeat that. Um, but of course, we are fighting against some very strong teams, mm. uh, cars, drivers, and so on. So they're not they're not sleeping either. So so it's going to be very very tight. But what's great, you can expect 13 races separated by uh, drivers separated by a few hundredths of a second, and and all sort of craziness going on. And and that's going to be like that all season until the end. Um, so we are we are clearly not dominate that sport because no one can. But we very much hope to be on, at the sharp end of it and and have a lot of success. Now, uh, you obviously have your your on-track mission, but you have your off-track mission as well, and that's very focused around climate change and sustainability. And um, I think you pride yourselves as the, the greenest team on the greenest grid, um, and you have your Race Against Climate Change um, mission. Tell us a little bit about that and, and the importance of that to the team. Yeah, <clears throat> look, it's really important. It's, it's the purpose of our team, right? So you, you look at the makeup of teams in Formula E. Most teams are well, we're up to now, you know, either directly owned by a, a car manufacturer, an OEM, or similar. You know, um, our team is very different. We are we are owned by a by a renewable energy company, which is very different to your, your usual motorsport team. So basically, it's simple. Our main raison d'être, you know, our purpose to to operate and to exist, is to be a very competitive race team. That's how that's how that's what we do day, day to day. But the whole discussion is how do you use the share of voice that you get? As a successful team, you get to be in the media, you get to speak to people, you get to you have you have a voice. So the question is how what do you do with it? So most teams, you know, if you're a car manufacturer, then of course you use it to promote your cars and your products. That makes sense. For us, we are lucky that you know we don't really have a product to sell. It's more about Talking about the bigger picture, um, and so Envision, our, our, our shareholder, um, the owner of the team, 
<coughs> basically makes uh, wind turbines, all forms of renewable energy, uh, uh, batteries, cells, basically, so energy storage, and um, software digital solutions to integrate grids, smart grids, and so on. So it's a fascinating part of, of, of our future, basically. And so the idea is to use our team, a bit like what we've done for electric cars, but now take it to the next level. What's even better than electric cars? It's electric cars powered by fully renewable energy, with smart grids, so you can actually, you have literally can drive around and have uh, still have mobility and transportation solutions with zero impact on the planet. Mm. And that's what really matters. And that's what we're here to talk about. So, so that's a great place to be. It's very exciting. Everyone in my team is very, you know, bought into that, that mission. That's what we care about. And actually, to be fair, I, I care about this equally as much as I do the motorsport side. Like I'm a very competitive person and I love motorsport. That's why, that's why we do what we do. But I find it so much more motivating to do this every day because there's a greater purpose to it. Mm. So as an example, my team, uh, we were at uh, COP26 in Glasgow end of last year. There was no other motorsport teams there. We were the only, actually, well, one of the only sports teams there. Um, but for a reason, because we can really, what we do every day, winning races and talking about climate change solutions and renewable energy and so on, is really useful. Um, the problem we have, it's a bit like electric car 10 years ago. It's a perception issue. Mm. Yeah. You know, 10 years ago, no one really cared about electric cars. Now, everyone I know around is saying my next car will be electric and the, yeah. the, the, the transition is 100% happening because people understand that these are actually great cars to drive, but also it's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, if you have kids or if you care about the future of the planet, you can't be too selfish and you've got to do the right thing. The next battle is make people understand that you know we can't be we can't be using, we can't be burning stuff, basically. We've got to, we have this incredible power source that is wind and, and sun, and we've got to use it. We have yeah. to check. It's purely yeah. a question of deployment, adaptation, and so on. But it's a big mountain to climb because you can just click your fingers and suddenly here, here we are, we're all renewable. So yeah. there's a lot of work behind the scenes, finance, you know, banks, uh, and so on to make it happen. But it's, it's such a great mission. So yeah, we are, we are very lucky to be at the intersection of, of you know, motorsport and, and make transportation and electric cars sexy and, and exciting. Now we need to do the same thing with the rest of the supply chain. Can I, um, uh, can I, can, I need you to settle something for me. So yeah. I, I've, uh, I, I've done this transition. I've moved to an electric car, which I never thought I would do even two years ago. Um, yep. And I love it. And I, I now would never go back. I'm completely sold on electric cars. I'm yep. a big fan. And uh, I have this argument which crops up at dinner parties and whatever or in the pub all the time where people who have uh, your traditional combustion engine say, well, eh, you've gone electric good for you but the reality is that 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 electric car the manufacturing of that electric car is is still using a lot of uh fuels and and you know pollutants um and the, and the crossover for when that becomes not uh bad on the environment to starting yeah. to be good on the environment it's like three years and huge amounts of money or something like is that right like how can i fight back against these people and be like i am doing the right thing I'll send you the link. There are many studies around this because it's an important subject. So <clears throat> the problem with this question is that it's a complex, of course, situation. And so not easily debatable at the pub, for sure. Um, <laughs> but the short answer is, what is absolutely undeniable, undeniable is that every single time there's an electric car on the road that's replacing a combustion engine, it has an incredible positive effect for the planet over the next decade. The question is how long. So for sure, all the studies are kind of um, can vary a little bit country by country, but you know, on average, does an electric car require a little bit more 
raw materials to make in the first place? Yes. Because mostly of the materials required in the battery. Um, but it's actually getting smaller and smaller because the chemistries of the batteries are changing. Now we can make electric motors without any wear of materials at all. So actually it's getting cleaner and cleaner to yeah. make these cars. But the payback is, it depends on the how clean or dirty the grid in your country is. But but on average, the payback of that, I think it depends, is between one or two years, let's say 10, 15, 20,000 kilometers, let's say, whatever. Yeah. But the life of your car is much longer than that, obviously. So the benefits are, are many X, yeah. uh, many X over, over a combustion engine. But the other thing that you have to take into account, I'll send you some links and you guys mm. can, can look it up, but... Um, First, from day zero, day, day one, when you drive the car, you have huge health benefits because these cars don't pollute where people live. That's the main thing. I live in Surrey, not far from London, and so many electric cars on the road now. Actually, every day I, I go out, I see more and more. But you still see, you know, diesel SUVs idling outside schools, and you still, and when you go to London, you can still still see a lot of, uh, of combustion. So the first thing we need to do is eradicate all of that and make sure it's electric mobility everywhere, especially in densely populated. Areas. And then you get huge health benefits straight away. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it depends purely on which region, which part of the world you are, right? So in the UK, we have some months where it's pretty much all renewable energy on all the electricity we use. So we are literally virtually running emission-free some other months, not so much. And then we still use nuclear and gas and so on, and then not so clean. But the other question we get all the time is, you know, the car is electric, but it's powered by the energy needs to come from somewhere. And again, depends country by country, but your car, your electric car is at least three times more efficient than your petrol car, if not more. Uh, and run-of-the-mill uh, petrol diesel car you buy on the street is probably 25-30% efficient. So once you know that, it's actually very painful. Every liter of gas you put in your car, three-quarters of that is actually doesn't make your car go forward. It's yeah. wasted through heat and friction, which when you know how expensive it is now, it's very frustrating. Um when, uh, when an electric car, it's 80-90% plus efficient. So every electricity you put in there, most of it makes the, the car go forward. So because it's so much more efficient, uh, a well-run grid, let's say, in the UK at 40-50 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour um, means that, uh, or sometimes more, but depending on the CO2 circumstances, <clears throat> means that the energy required per mile traveled is many times less in an electric car. There's virtually no situation where an electric car pollutes more than a petrol car or diesel car. Even... I forgot the example, so I don't want to say something wrong, but um, there was a, even a country that's virtually run, all the electricity would come from coal, an electric car would still be cleaner yeah. than, a, than a hybrid car. Oh, because brilliant. it's so much more efficient. So it's using very little energy per mile traveled. But the reality is that every country in the world, uh, every year, their grid is getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Yeah. And your car, therefore, is getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. When your internal combustion car is not getting cleaner and cleaner, and cleaner yeah, every year, yeah, yeah. it's the same. Once every liter of fuel that you put in your car, you burn it once and that's it. You'll never see it again. And the last, and I'll stop, it's too long, but the last aspect also to understand is the recycling. All the fuel you put in your car, you burn it once and it goes in the atmosphere and you'll never see it again. But the raw materials you put in your car, even if that car, let's say, becomes, uh, you take it out of the road in 10, 15 years, you can recycle and reuse pretty much all the components. And they will still be very valuable. So we know for sure that it will not go to landfill because they will be valuable. So there will be a business case to reuse them. So all the batteries that are a bit, you know, maybe 80, 90% of their capacity, maybe not so good anymore to uh, be in an electric car, all these batteries for sure will be used for um, uh, energy storage in stationary applications like industries, warehouse, renewable energy, and so on. So then you're looking at the benefits of a 
30 or 40 years for that battery you made you know, 30 years ago. Uh, and it becomes a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that help? I, I see what you mean, how you can't really have that discussion at the pub. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've tried many times. I've tried many times. I'm yet, I'm yet to find a one-sentence answer. Sadly, that, that's not possible yeah, yet. Yeah, but, that's the yeah. key. But I mean, you make a really... I mean, it's, it, it's a good sell, what you do. It's very totally. convincing. And we're running out of time still, then, with you, because we could really chat about this all day. We've got our final yeah. three questions, but I just want to ask you one more before we go to our final three, sure. which is another... Maybe it's a big question. I'm not sure. There's been a lot of debate around it. It is the Formula One question mm. and sure. Formula E versus each other. I know that, that you can't compare the two. But going <laughs> forward, can they coexist as both progress or can they merge? Is that an option? How do you view that whole scenario? Yeah, I think so. Uh, no, we, we get this uh, get asked this, this question quite a lot. I, I think, look, you have to be pragmatic, right? Formula One is an incredible incredible sport, incredible reach, incredible audience, very exciting sport, actually, maybe not so much in the last few years, but it looks like it's going to be exciting again, um, depending on what's going on. So super exciting sport. The, the problem that Formula One have, which is you know, obvious, but I say this again, is that like, like all top-end motorsports up to now, they've been extremely reliant on, on that um, kind of uh, road car relevancy, right? And track-to-road story. And, you know, stating the obvious, that's not going to work out, right? Because it's very obvious that all the cars are all going to be battery electric in the next you know, five to ten years. That's just a, that's just a fact now. So, so I think Formula One will have a really big decision to make. Not for the next, because they've already agreed on the next cycle, right? With synthetic fuels and so on. But for the cycle after that, they're going to have some big decisions to make on on whether do they try to be as electric as they can. You know, can the Formula One be ninety percent? You know, hybrid, 90% electric, 10% petrol, right? Maybe it can, I don't know. Um, or do they take a very different direction and they kind of, you know, do a big tack and forget about what relevancy and try to build the most exciting in their eyes form of, you know, combustion engine with synthetic fuels, you know, and maybe that could work out as well. It's, it will come down to what the manufacturers want to do. Teams, you know, they can work around that. It will depend on how much manufacturer support they need, and what kind of sport they want to be. But for sure, it's going to be a huge transition and they will, they will not be able to escape it. Like, this will happen. This decision will have to be made. Um, Formula E, you know, it's easier in that sense. We have we are a much smaller championship, of course, um, but we are going very fast and we have a very strong clarity of purpose. Like, Cars Electric, that's where we're going. And we every generation, we do a huge step in performance and, and technology. So we've got it easy in that sense. Like, we know where the roadmap is. Um, but... No one wants Formula One to disappear, right? Like Formula One needs to stay. It's an incredible showcase of technology. It's just a question of what should it be? What should that technology be? Um, but I'm, I'm really confident the two can coexist for a very long time. Uh, it's a question of fine-tuning the business model, right? The cost cap in Formula One is the first sign of that. You know, yeah. they need yeah, to be able way. to they need to be able to carry on without manufacturers spending, you know, frankly, silly money. Yeah on putting two race cars on the road. So, and we can see, you can put these cost caps. Does it affect the racing product? Not at all. It might actually make it better. So that's, that's the first step of their transition. I think. It's, uh, I think, Harry, this has got to be the most highbrow conversation we've ever had Very on the podcast. High. I'm seriously impressed with it. But it's fascinating. And you could, I would love to go to the pub and discuss this with you because it, it, <laughs> they're, they're such deep and interesting topics. And I think 
outside of experts like yourself, really, for us laymans, we're just scratching the surface of this in terms of our knowledge of it. And when you when you dive into it like this and hear it from someone who's in it every day, it's such a fascinating and interesting topic and, and also just gets you thinking, doesn't it? You start to think, God, you know, I'd, what am I doing to the planet? Am I doing the right thing? Should I, am I driving the right car? You're not Harry Benjamin with your cash kai, by the way. <laughs> It's only a one point. It's only a Yeah, fair enough. Um, now, yeah. Sylvan, we've we've kept you for long enough. As Harry mentioned, we have um, a final three questions that we ask all of our guests, um, and um, we've we've sure. actually I've adapted the second one slightly back to ha- a question we had a long time ago that we haven't used for a long time, but we've we've chatted it back in. Um, but Harry, um, do you want to kick us off? Yes, Sylvan, what's got you excited at the moment? Well, that's easy and predictable. I think it's the um, it's the season ahead, basically. Like when you work in motorsports and you run a team, your life becomes such a cycle. Like, and you know, my wife doesn't like it, but like I usually <laughs> look back at memories and I always say, "Oh, yeah, that was season four, season five, yeah. or season three. Like your your life, the, uh, your life. Clock, season three of your life. My yeah. exactly. Your, li- yeah. your life clock becomes becomes uh, aligned with yeah. racing season. So it is just no way around it. <laughs> so so that's yeah. Once terrible. once once the racing season has started, that's all I can think about really. Um, so yeah, and then of course, sorry, long answer. But part of my job is you know also to look ahead and always build the future of this team. And so we've just announced a, a very exciting partnership with Jaguar for the next generation of cars. And I'm also hugely excited about this. Um, it's the next four years of our life. The car is absolutely incredible. The technology we'll be able to showcase soon um, is absolutely incredible. And we have um, it's a great team. We get along super well as teams. So I'm, I'm very excited about the next four years. But you also have to pay a lot of attention to what's happening here and now, which is the next race in Rome and Monaco and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer. Um, how much of your personal success is down to luck and right place, right time? And how much is down to sheer hard work? Um, well, I think it would be very arrogant to say that, you know, luck and, and timing has, doesn't have a, a place. It massively does. Like, yeah, I just happened to be, I just happened to be one of the few guys that, you know, were interested in motorsports and electric cars at the right time, probably a bit too early in some ways, but um, yeah, you need both. That's a very simple answer, right? Like, the main thing for me, I would say, at least that's how I do things, is to try to be distracted. We live in a world where you can be so distracted by so many things, and which is fun. But if you want to, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you have a clear objective, something you really want to achieve, personally, at work or whatever, the only way this is going to work is to be pretty focused, like full focus on this, because it's so easy to get distracted. And um, and so you need, definitely need luck. You definitely need the timing to be right. And sometimes you can't help it. It just works out. Or it doesn't. But nothing will, even if you have that right, nothing will happen unless you you have really full focus on something. Otherwise, it's too easy. So, And it, my day life is like this. You know, I have a lot of things to do in the company, running a company. Sometimes I've got to be quite, quite quite shrewd and say, you know, I'm only going to spend that much time on this because it's important, but it's not mission critical. You know, what's mission critical is to get this and this right. Um, and we all have to make these choices in our lives. So that, that's the main thing I, w- I would say probably. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, actually. Um, final question, Sylvan, and we'll let you go. What are you scared of? Well, you know what? Day to day, <clears throat> day to day, I'm not scared of much, which, you know, that's good. We live in, you know, Lucky to be living to live in the UK and have a, have a pretty good life. You know what? I'm honestly, I never really thought about it too much, but 
what I'm scared of probably is what we talked about earlier is the big picture. Like what I'm scared of is the stuff that we can't control, right? And I try to follow the science and look at what's happening with the planet, but um, you know, you look at the news a few days ago that are all accurate, right? Like the uh, Antarctic is 40 degrees more than it should be, right? Not two or three, 40, you know? And there's a huge block of ice in Antarctic that they said will always be there. That's the last bit that will melt in 100 years, and that's the one that's gone, you know? So we are lucky part of racing has come a change to have a, to speak to Johan Rockstrom and Michael Mann and some really exciting, really interesting guys like climate scientists. And I know it's far away from motorsports, but that's the point. We're trying to bridge the two. And, you know, you look at some forecasts and it's actually quite scary. Like, like, you know, you want to basically buy a house on top of a hill somewhere in Wales and then you'll be safe, you know, but there's some forecasts. So that's probably what scares me. Maybe scares is the wrong word because it's, it's not tomorrow, right? It's, yeah. far, it's further down the, the future. But there are some big things happening to this planet that I'm not entirely sure if we are in control. Yeah, um, I, 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 think, and, I think that's a very good answer. And, and I'm totally on board with it. And I, I saw, I watched, uh, I watched a load of crap on um, YouTube. And one of the things I watched recently, yeah. I can't remember this guy's name. He's a very famous, his name's left me, very famous American um, professor and scientist, does a lot of YouTube content. But he talks yeah. a lot about the delicate nature of our planet and our solar system and and one thing that he said that really freaked me out was that imagine you scale down the earth to an apple the size of an apple and you look at the skin of that apple compared to the apple itself that's our atmosphere and that's all that separates us that skin of the apple is all that separates us from oblivion and and space and that i was just like oh my god like it's so easy to tear the skin of an apple he's like that's what it's like on planet yeah. earth and that just made fragile, me yeah. go oh my and it, god and it's a very fine line between like <clears throat> all this is true and and i would really urge you, your your listeners and everyone to watch um, a netflix documentary i think it's called breaking boundaries i think it's called from Jan rockstrom really interesting it's an hour and a half it goes in two minutes you don't have to be especially interested in science to to watch it and it just explains all the um, you know, all the risk well what is actually pretty safe because you have to be positive right some some aspects of climate crisis are actually solvable uh, and we can do it in our fans. Some others are a bit more touch and go. Um, but it's a fine line. It's like electric cars. What we don't want to be is to be scaremongering, patronizing. That's not helping. Like what you want to be is you want to be inspirational. You want to be exciting. Mm-hmm. So we are converting people to drive electric cars because we make electric cars much better than petrol cars. Like that's the right way to go. Not to say you must drive an electric car, you know. Um, so same for, for climate science and climate change. We have to say, look, we can actually make life better. You know, if all our energy is coming from the sun and wind, we can still live the same life with the same comfort, but without any of the pollution and the smell and the noise and whatever, it can be better. Um, but you have to explain all of that and it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Um, very, well, seri- very serious ending. I like you know. it though. It's good. It's, it's different and it's, uh, it's an important topic. So um, thank you for sharing all your amazing insights with us. Best of luck to you and the team and the drivers and everyone else involved with Envision Racing for the rest of this season and beyond. But for now, Sylvain, thank you for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
If you've been listening to this and thinking, actually, I really want to go and experience a race for myself in person, why not do it in style at a Formula One Grand Prix thanks to F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel programme of Formula One. F1 Experiences really is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first class hotels, travel and exclusive behind the scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So to to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter code MM11F1E, you'll get 5% off too. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review, and until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.